New York Rangers fans, what is going on? And welcome to episode 58 of the New Ice City Podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Mercagliano of the USA Today Network. And here we are staring down a two-week break for the Rangers. Many other teams will have extended time off during this window as well. The Rangers are fortunate in this sense that they did not have too many games postponed due to COVID during the first half of the season. And now, because NHL players will not be participating in the Olympics, the Rangers get to use a lot of this time to rest. They won't play again until February 15th. They do have three games that they'll make up during this February window, but for the most part, they're going to get a lot of downtime, recuperation time, a lot of time to self-evaluate. And I think for them, for tired reporters like myself, it's very much needed. They have played eight games in the last 14 days. I believe they've played more road games than any team in the league and the second most total games of any team in the league. So it has been a grueling schedule for the Rangers in a lot of ways. And now, beginning today, which is the day I'm recording, Wednesday, February 2nd, until they return on February 15th against the Boston Bruins, the Rangers are going to have some time off, some time to themselves. They're not going to practice again until February 11th. Uh, That's two Fridays from now. So the team is scattered. A lot of these guys are getting away. A lot of these guys are going to get to spend some time with their families. I plan on doing exactly that, taking the little guy out of daycare for a couple weeks, which is going to be great, spend some quality time with him. Going to go see some friends this weekend and then make our way down to Maryland to spend a little time with the in-laws. I still do have a lot of plans, though, handful of stories that I'm working on, a couple podcasts coming your way. So we're not going to be dead as far as the content is concerned, but I am going to take a few days here to catch my breath, especially over the weekend, and I'm very much looking forward to that. And I can tell you, just being around the team recently, they really seem like they need it. And we're going to talk about exactly why in a few minutes, but you could just kind of tell, especially in this past week, that they were dragging a little bit. And they didn't want to use it as an excuse, but it was pretty obvious to anybody who was paying attention that that they were pretty run down, that they needed this break. They're beat up. Adam Fox, Capo Caco, Philip Hedel have all missed the last few games. I know there are other guys who are dealing with minor things right now. So Gerard Gallant said it after Tuesday's game, which was a 5-2 win over the Florida Panthers that we're going to talk about in a couple minutes. But that was a time that that he finally kind of at the end of that game said, you know, personally, I think this is something that we need as far as the break goes. So that will give us some time to assess and regroup and talk about everything that's happened so far this season. I was hoping slash planning on a guest who I was really excited about for this week. I was kind of holding out hope for it. It had been discussed a little bit. The timing didn't exactly work out. I think you guys would have been really excited about this one, so I'm sorry that it didn't work out. We will try again soon, so hopefully things will work out with this guest at some point in the near future. I thought about scrambling for a replacement, but honestly, there's so much to discuss. We received so many questions when I asked you guys on Twitter today that we just decided to go pure mailbag because as good of a spot as the team is in right now as far as their record is concerned... There's just a lot to talk about. So uh, let's get that all out of the way this episode. And then for next week's episode, I think I'll plan something that's a little more wide-ranging and not so hyper-focused on what's going on with the team. But for today, I think this is a perfect time while everything is fresh in our minds to dive into 
all the ins and outs of the New York Rangers, everything that happened in the first half, and then everything that we're looking forward to and anticipating for the second half. So I think that'll be a fun way to go with this with this episode this week. I hope you guys enjoy it as well. We're going to get to those questions that you submitted soon, but let's start by going over what happened in the past week. And the perfect place to start, where we left off at last week's episode, a lot of that was devoted to Henrik Lundqvist and the Rangers getting ready to retire his number 30 jersey in that Friday night game or prior to that Friday night game against the Minnesota Wild. Ceremony was very well done. I can tell you, I know that the people with the Rangers, the people at MSG spent months and months planning that event. And you could see everything was meticulous. Everything had a purpose. Everything, you know, all the T's were crossed and the I's were dotted. It was really, really neat to be there for that. That was the first time that I was on hand for the Rangers retiring a jersey. Lundqvist is the 11th number or jer- or player that they've retired. It's actually 10 numbers, but 11 player who's had his jersey retired by the Rangers. First one that I got to be on hand for, and you, you could feel the energy in that building. Even when I was walking in, and I walked in there like a little after two o'clock in the afternoon, there were people all around Madison Square Garden, people out there with Lundqvist jerseys. Just the excitement that you felt surrounding that event was was palpable. And I think you know, I've talked to a few people about this in the last week or two, and I think that one of the reasons, now I'm sure that all of these jersey retirement ceremonies had a certain level of excitement, but I think that this one had a lot of meaning for a lot of people because Lundquist is the only player whose jersey is going to hang in the rafters from his era. At least as far as I'm concerned, and I'm pretty sure that I'm right on that. Maybe I'll be proven wrong. But if you look at the guys that he played with, especially those 2010s, that era, that decade team, when they had all those great runs with Tortorella and then with A.V., I think Lundqvist is going to be the only representative from from those teams to have his jersey hang in the rafters. He was the only, I think, Hall of Fame player who was on any of those teams. On the other hand, you look at the 94 championship team, and there were four of those, those guys on hand for Lundquist's ceremony. Mike Richter, Adam Graves, Mark Messier, Brian Leach, four guys from that championship team had their numbers retired. So the even though Messier was the captain and he was in a lot of ways a star of the team at that time, it was sort of a shared thing. There was multiple guys who were Hockey Hall of Fame type players, who were star players, who ultimately will be remembered for being a part of that championship team and as key players on that championship team. We all know that Lundqvist, many times, especially early in his career, he dragged Rangers teams that weren't that good, that didn't have a lot of offensive firepower. We talked about that a little bit last week and, and some of the people that I spoke with from those teams who who said, you know, we didn't care if we got shot outshot 50 to 20, we knew that Hank gave us a chance. I think that's why that this had a little extra oomph, a little more special meaning for people. Because when you think back on those days, which I know were very happy times for a lot of you Rangers fans, Lundqvist is always going to be the first guy that comes to your mind. And I think that's why there was so much love in the building on Friday night. Lundqvist himself, I thought, seemed... It struck me how at, at peace he seemed. Because the way that things ended... There were reasons that he could have had regrets or been bitter. First off, we all know his final season with the Rangers did not go the way that he would have liked it. 
Not only did Alex Georgiev lead the team and starts that season, but Igor Shosturkin comes up right at the beginning of the new year in 2020 and caught fire and basically seized the job and really pushed Lundqvist into the background. He was playing so sparingly in those last few months, and I know that the fierce competitor that he is, that that killed him. Some of his teammates talked about it recently too, especially Chris Kreider talked about how how well he thought Lundqvist handled that. But you could tell. I remember because at that point we were in the locker room before COVID hit, and you could just tell that that something was eating at this guy, and and we all knew what it was. It was the fact that he wasn't playing that much, so it wasn't it wasn't the ideal way for him to go out. He didn't exactly go out on top. Then he gets bought out which is sort of an unceremonious way for for a player to end his career in the only places that he's ever played. He struggled with it. He talked about afterward deciding if he could picture himself playing in another uniform. He ultimately decided that the competitive fire was still burning and went on and signed with the Washington Capitals. Of course, we know what happened from there. The heart condition creeps up. He ends up needing open heart surgery, which is an incredibly scary thing for anybody to go through, let alone somebody as young, relatively, in, in his late 30s as Lundquist. That's something that I think a lot of people like me in their 30s couldn't even comprehend. So just such a crazy roller coaster of events and, and emotions and health scares and, and all the stuff that's happened to him in the last year plus, really. it's It's been, I guess, a year and a half since the time when the Rangers bought him out and, and two years if you want to go back to the time when Igor came up and Lundquist started playing so sparingly. With all of that happening, I think he really seems to have found some inner peace and some perspective and some appreciation for life and appreciation for time with his family and an appreciation for life after hockey because I think it was really hard for him for a while to come to grips with losing his job, not playing for the Rangers, going to another team, still wanting to hang on, and then ultimately being able to let go. And what I really felt like we all sensed being around him for a little bit on Friday night, hearing him speak both at the press conference earlier in the day and during his speech with the fans prior to the game, that you just really got the sense that that this guy is happy. He, he's in a really good place mentally, emotionally, and, and you felt really good about that, looking back on how turbulent things were at the end of his time with the Rangers. So very happy to see that. I think a lot of you guys probably felt good about that as well. A couple things I'll mention, just, you know, I don't know who was at the game and who wasn't. A lot of you were. That place was jammed. And like I said, the energy in the building was awesome and around the building and before the game, during the game, after the game, all that. I I will say that I wish during his speech there was a few people. And and listen, we know that there was 18 plus thousand in the building and the amount of people that were doing this are probably a handful. So in large part, the people in the building were very respectful and handled the night great. But during his speech, there were a few people that just kept yelling out. You know, it, it was like a little awkward. And I know that I talked to some people around the Rangers who felt the same way. It made it difficult for Lundqvist to, you know, go get through his speech without getting interrupted, you know, keep his train of thought and all that. So I, I do wish that people would have showed a little bit more respect during his speech and, and let the man talk. This was his moment. I think a lot of us are very interested in what he had to say, and there were certainly points during the speech where I felt like he was kind of getting drowned out by people. And listen, people weren't yelling anything bad. It was, I love you, Hank, you know, whatever, whatever things like that. But still, you know, in, in those moments, 
people only get one opportunity at doing something like that. Mike Richter actually, I thought, gave a great quote before, before the ceremony about the meaning that a ceremony like that has for the few players who get that opportunity. It's really a moment of closure for them in a lot of ways and very emotional. And I do wish that that he wouldn't have been interrupted as often as he was during the speech. But again, you know, that's kind of a minor blip in what was otherwise a really well done night. The other thing I would say to fans, anybody that was there and did this, I know you guys were upset with the the non-goal call at the end of the game, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second, but don't throw your beers on the ice. I mean, you know, this is just something that I feel like we shouldn't even have to talk about, but have a little decency, have a little respect. You know, you're making, you're making Rangers fans as a whole look bad with your actions, and the refs aren't going to change the call because you threw your beer on the ice, so it's just a silly thing to do. It compromises the safety of the players. It compromises the safety of everybody in the arena. Just don't do not do that, guys. I just wanted to get that off my chest because I've had some people reach out to me. And that was one thing, those two things, the yelling out during Lundqvist's speech and the beer throwing after the game that kind of irked me. And, and, and I figured we'd address really quickly here on the podcast. But again, overwhelmingly a great night. And I don't want you guys to think that any of that stuff changed it. Just something that I thought, you know, I got a microphone. Why not address it? All right. As for the way the game ended, now this is, let's get into some actual hockey talk here. The Rangers did not play well in that game against the Wild. And this is, again, in the midst of this time where it felt like things were slipping for them. They, they looked tired. They looked worn down. They just did not look like they had it. And they finally, they rally in that last minute of the game against the Wild. And it looked like Mika Zibanejad tied the game in the final second, literally the final second. But initially, my thought was, that's a good goal. The more I looked at the replay, the different angles, talked to some people about it, including Gerard Gallant, who said he thought it was a 50-50 call and that the refs did the fair thing and that, you know, if he were on the other side, Minnesota side, he would have wanted the call to stand as well. And he really didn't take any issue with the fact that the goal was not allowed. And if you look at the replay, you can debate about whether Strom was pushed, but the fact is his stick moved Cam Talbot's pad back. People, people telling if you're talking about, you know, he sprawled, if you look ahead, he sprawled after his pad or had already been pushed by the stick. So clearly, I think there was merit to that call. I don't think that that was some big anti-Rangers conspiracy or whatever kind of crazy stuff is being floated on social media. I thought that was a fair call. And quite frankly, the Rangers deserved it. They did not play well enough to win that game. And, and so I, I don't see any point in getting all worked up about a call that I think was Maybe 50-50, honestly, the more I looked at it, the more I kind of leaned toward it being the right call, and that should not have been a goal. So the Rangers take a loss against the Wild. Then we move ahead to Sunday, where they beat the Seattle Kraken by a score of 3-2, to two, but that game was even worse than the game against Minnesota. They really did not deserve to win that game. And if you listened to the press conference with Gerard Gallant after the game, that to me was the most stark the most wide-eyed, I think, that I probably walked out of any post-game press conference with him so far this year because a lot of times when the Rangers have won and we've seen that they were outshot and outchanced and didn't play all that well and Igor dragged them across the finish line or you know whatever it was that, that helped them win a game where it looked like they were probably out of it for a lot of it, a lot of times after those games, he's sort of unapologetic and, you know, we won and this is how we won, and I'm going to take the two points and run with it. And, and nobody can blame him for that. That's absolutely the right thing, I think, in those situations for the coach to say. But the Seattle game seemed to be a bit of a boiling point for him. 
And when he walked into the room, I was expecting him to say, well, you know, we were we had some ups and downs, but we found a way to win. We walk out of here with two points and a lot of the same stuff that we've heard. But his first response to my first question was, I think it was awful. He used the word awful. He used the word quit. He came down hard on his team about what he saw as a lack of effort in the game against Seattle. Even though they won the game 3-2, to two, the Rangers played very poorly. The Kraken, I believe, doubled their shot total. It was like 40-something to 20-something. They didn't give up a lot of high-danger chances if you look at the numbers. And if you just watched the game, you didn't feel like Seattle was very threatening. But Seattle is not a very threatening team. They're one of the weakest offensive teams in the league. So to let a team like that get 40-plus shots and control possession and dictate the pace of play the way that they did, it was a major disappointment for the Rangers. And I think that that message was... The timing was was pretty good on Gallant's part because it was going right into this big game against Florida on Tuesday. I think the players heard it loud and clear. We talked to a few of them the next day at practice. And, and Ryan Strom, I thought, who always has great perspective on these things, said something along the lines of, we didn't need to hear that. We knew it. And if you didn't know it, your, your head isn't in the right place. So I, I think that it was a wake-up call in a lot of senses for the Rangers to have that poor showing against Seattle and to get called out publicly by their coach. And we know that we've talked about this before. Gallant, for the most part, is very protective over his guys. He certainly tries to avoid criticizing his guys publicly. But I think he felt like in that moment, he he needed to get that off of his chest. He wanted the message to be sent and the message was sent. Now, fast forward to Tuesday, the Rangers are hosting the Florida Panthers. Now, this team, I actually had not had a chance to see them in person yet. The first time they came to New York, I was away for my buddy's wedding. The second time the Rangers played them was in Florida, which is when I had COVID and did not make that trip. So Tuesday was actually my first time seeing the Panthers play in person. And man, that first period, I was turning to some of the people next to me and talking with a few people and like, wow, this team is fast. They are skilled. They come at you in waves. It just felt like the Panthers had one rush opportunity after another in that first period. And the Rangers just looked like they were on their heels. They looked like they could not hang with this team. So even though they escaped the first period 1-1, I'm thinking this thing looks like it's going to snowball in the the wrong direction. And had that happened, I really can't stress this enough, the importance of, of the Rangers' response in that game where they rally and come back and played two of their best periods of the year and ended up winning 5-2. to two. Had they wilted and just packed it in and looked ahead to their vacation plans and said, you know what, we're tired, we're just going to mail it in, I think that these two weeks off that they have now would have been filled with doubts. It would have been, it would have been a really ugly way to end, and it would have only amplified all the questions surrounding this team that we had seen. Gallant comes out after Sunday's game against the Kraken, calls it an awful performance, says that he feels like his team his team's level of play has been slipping in the last week or so. And then had they gotten spanked by the Panthers, it only would have made all that stuff worse and it would have lingered throughout these two weeks. And it would, have, I think, really put them in a spot where they were feeling pretty bad about themselves without another game to play to make up for it for a long time. Instead, the way that they rallied, now they go into this break riding a high. And it really did seem to be a, they, the, a few of the guys talked about it. At first intermission, the Rangers talked about going from being passive to being the aggressor. And you could see it in the second period. 
they the the first goal that they score uh, where they tie the game after Florida had taken a two to one lead. Chris Kreider was saying we talked about those puck battles. We need to make sure that that we're getting in when we do send those pucks deep and that we do win those battles. Kreider wins a battle along the wall, feeds Alexi Lafreniere. All of a sudden, the score is two two. Rangers get a couple power play goals from there. But even even at even strength, which we know has been an issue all season, I thought the Rangers looked like the aggressor. I thought that they looked like they they came out against the best team in the league and dictated the game. They dictated the pace of play. They didn't get pushed around. They definitely got fired up. There were some physical moments in that game. There were some testy moments in that game. Ryan Strom ultimately uh, gets into a fight with Marchman and, and Strom against a bigger dude who, you know, I think a lot of people at first when they see Strom, Strom dropping the gloves, myself included, you're thinking... Is he really the best guy to be doing this? The Rangers kind of need him right now. He's one of their best forwards. There's other guys on the bottom of the roster, like Orion Reeves, who you think might be more well-equipped to take care of that kind of business. But Strom really held his own in that fight, definitely got the bench fired up. But even before that, Truba was getting into it with guys. Ryan Lindgren was getting into it with guys. Dryden Hunt was getting into it with guys. You just saw a lot of spunk from a Rangers team that, again, the way that first period went, the way that it felt, I would not have been shocked at all if they packed it in and said, okay, we're just, we'll just regroup after the break. But they responded in a big way. And it, it totally changes the tenor of the conversation today because had they lost that game, I think there would have been a lot of negativity swirling around this team right now. But the way that they won it, definitely one of their best wins of the year. A lot of positive vibes for them as they go into these two weeks. Now, there's still some self-evaluation to do. There are still some questions to answer. And that's why I thought this would be a perfect day to do this mailbag episode because I want to answer some of those questions. So I'm not going to dive into that now. Instead, we're going to do a little transition here and then we'll come back and answer some of your questions and dive into, you know, what are some of the positives, negatives, pros, cons, lingering questions, all that kind of stuff surrounding this team. And what can we expect when they come back and still have 35 games to go? We still got a lot of games to go, 47 down, 35 to go. So thanks everyone for sticking with me through it. And now let's get to your Twitter questions. All right, folks, no prep for this one. We are going in blind and we're going to see what comes up. I see I've got quite a few questions, so I'm going to try to get through as many of them as I can up until the time I got to go. Quick heads up for you guys. It is, you should probably wish him a happy birthday. It's Papa Mercogliano's, not me, my father's birthday today. Big guy's turning 81, so we got some steaks. We're going over there tonight. I'm going to cook them up for him, making some garlic herb butter to go with those steaks. I'm getting a little fancy, getting a little crazy, so got to make sure I'm out of here at a reasonable time, but I do have a decent amount of time to go before it's time to make our way over there, and the baby is napping right now, which is a good thing. So we're going to go ahead and breeze through some of these questions and and see what happens, and uh, like I said, no prep, going in blind, so might get a little crazy here. All right, let's start with this one from Cody Ryder, because this is a topic that I wanted to address. I actually wrote a story about this topic earlier today. It'll be going up uh, on all the websites. Definitely check out uh, aloha.com slash sports slash rangers is our landing page for this one if you want to check it out, which is all about assessing how I think all the forwards the Rangers have used so far this season have done 
and sort of putting together what I think are ideal line combinations coming out of the break. So we dive into some analytics, we dive into some other non-analytic kind of stuff and factors that I believe are, are involved here. But looking at each player, what do they bring to the table? What have they done? Where do they fit best? And then I kind of finish it by going into what I think the Rangers' best line combinations will be coming out of the break. I'm sure I'm going to end up talking about some of that stuff here, but definitely wanted to tease that story a little bit and, and encourage everyone to check it out. By the time this podcast comes out, the story will be up as well. So... Cody's question is, does Laugh's relative success on the top line the past two games delay the Rangers' trade plans? Do they wait a little longer before acquiring that top six forward? Cody, I don't know if you are a regular listener to the podcast. If you are not, then welcome. Glad to have you. Many of you, though, who have listened and who have read my stuff for the last few months know that I have sort of been banging this drum that... The Rangers are exploring a lot of options. They absolutely intend to make at least one trade, maybe two, prior to that March 21st deadline. But there is no rush. There has never been a big rush. I know that there are some alarming things when you look at the five-on-five statistics, when you look at some of the troubling trends, when you look at this last week or two, when we felt like they were underperforming and and, and the slippage and the, the underlying issues were starting to show up and result in a few more losses. I could understand feeling a little more urgency based on that. But at the same time, what I've been hearing and what I've been relaying to you guys all along is that this is not something that they are going to rush to do. They have time. We're still well over a month, closer to two months away from the trade deadline. And what I believe and what I've been told is that the longer they wait, the more inevitably teams will find themselves falling out of the playoff race and options will open up as far as trade partners are concerned. If they rush to do it right now, the options are going to be much more limited. And without having the deadline right around the corner, teams are going to be asking for sky-high prices. As you get closer to the deadline, yeah, the competition for some of these players might ramp up, but teams will also realize that it's now or never to trade them. So I think right now you would be paying probably a higher price than you like for a lot of these players that you might look at via trade. And your options are going to be more limited because there are teams that are sort of hovering around that playoff race right now that think, hey, if we come out of the break and we have a good week or two, we could be right in it. Well, some of those teams are going to come out of the break and have a bad week or two, and then they're going to ultimately decide it's time to take our medicine. This isn't our year, and we want to get something for the assets that we have. So I absolutely believe that the Rangers are waiting on that to happen. Now, could something materialize quicker than that? I'm sure Drury, with these two weeks off, will be working the phones and exploring more options, and I know he's already made quite a few calls. But I also believe that it is much more likely to happen close to the trade deadline than you're going to see it happening in February. I think the time for deals is going to be March, not February. So I wouldn't go sitting around checking your phones constantly and all that kind of stuff right now. I mean, you know, definitely check your phones and read everything I'm writing. But besides that, you know, try to enjoy a little time and not stress out every day about a deal because I don't see some big hammer dropping right now. I could be wrong. Things could always change. This is such a fluid business. And there's obviously always conversations going on. But my gut, my hunch, and quite frankly, my sources point me in the direction of something happening closer to the trade deadline. 
As far as Lafreniere and his success on the top line, that is something that I certainly touched on in this story that I mentioned where I broke down everything that's been going on with the forwards. I, I find it very difficult for the Rangers to think about coming out of this break with anything other than Lafreniere on the top line with Kreider and Zibanejad. It just, at this point, it makes too much sense. Your other options are too weak. If you had some surefire top line right winger on the roster, then absolutely I would say, okay, Lafreniere, you know, he has not wowed you yet. He has not totally earned a no doubt about it spot in the top in the top six or on the top line. But the way that this roster is currently constituted with holes in it, they absolutely, I've been telling you guys over and over, the number one priority at the trade deadline is going to be a forward who can play in the top nine, preferably the top six. But the way that they are right now, it absolutely, to me, makes the most sense for them to come out of the break with the top six that looks like Kreider, Mika, and Lafreniere on the top line, Panarin, Strom, and Kako on the second line. And if you go read that story that I mentioned, I, I dove into some of the numbers. As far as whether it's actual goals, expected goals, shot rates, possession numbers, high danger chances... Both of those line combinations have fared very well in those statistical categories so far this season. There are a lot, there's a lot of evidence pointing toward those being the right answers for the Rangers, at least for now. And besides the numbers, throwing the statistics out for a little bit, what we saw, number one, was that Kako, his best stretch of the season, came when he was playing with Panarin and Strom. He had actually had a four-game point streak leading into that November 24th game when a lot of you will remember the the Rangers were visiting UBS Arena for the first time and playing the Islanders right before Thanksgiving. And we were all surprised that day when Gallant told us, you're going to see some lineup changes tonight. And then he ended up moving Kako up to the first line and putting Dryden Hunt on the second line with Panarin and Strom. At the time... It was it was certainly a head scratcher, but you know his reasoning as far as him liking the way the Kako's skill set might mesh with Mika and Kreider made some sense. And if you look at the numbers of those three together, it's not like they've been bad. But what you have to take into consideration here is that Mika and Kreider are having outstanding seasons in their own right. the The key here is is that a good fit for Kako? And if you look at Kako's production, he's played 23 games on that line with those two. He has nine points. He's not exactly breaking out or or taking that role and running with it. I thought he looked best when he was with Panarin and Strom. And you you gave that top line a chance for a really extended stretch, about two months. I think that experiment is probably over now. And part of the reason is... Not only did Kako do really well with Strom and Panarin, especially at the end, they really seemed to be picking up steam right before the change was made. So you can feel comfortable going back to that, hoping that they can pick things back up and sort of keep going on that path and and trending in the direction that we saw them trending before the change was made. But the other part of this equation is that Lafreniere has had an up and down season. Confidence has been an issue. What has become increasingly clear to me is that he, his preference, you know, he wouldn't come out and directly say this. When I asked him the question the other day, he was like, well, you know, um, it's kind of fun playing with everybody. I'm happy to play wherever they put me. But he also came back around and said, it is really fun playing with Mika and Kreider. 
And when I also followed that up and said, are you comfortable point blank playing right wing? Do you think that you can handle adjusting to the right wing? His answer was unequivocally yes. He said, I'm good enough to adjust. And he sounded very willing and open to making that change. So I believe the time has come for the Rangers to give him more responsibility, give him more leash, and let him run with the opportunity. If a month goes by or however long it ends up being, and he's stalling and it's not working, and the trade deadline is here, well, then maybe you end up replacing him. But I think at least leading up to the point when you make a trade, Lafreniere should be given some leeway. There could be mistakes. He's learning to play on his offhand. He's never played in a full-time top six role before for more than a handful of games at a time. But this, I believe, is the time. And and there are, again, a lot of underlying statistics that lead you to believe that having him with Kreider and Mika works. So that is absolutely, I believe, the way that the Rangers should go. And I think it is the way that they're going to go. Gerard Gallant said to us this past week that, His focus was sort of keeping things familiar and trying to get through this grueling stretch of games and get into the break. And then during the break, they were going to take some time to assess and evaluate and rethink their lines and rethink their D pairs. Although I'm not sure we're going to see anything drastic with the D pairs, but I think they are going to spend a lot of time talking about this during the break. And the more that I've researched it, the more that I've watched it, and I'm sure that they feel the same way. It looks very obvious right now that that Lafreniere on the top line, Kako on the second line is the way to go. It not only, I think, puts the best possible lineup out there for the Rangers, but it gives their young players, honestly, their two most important young forwards in Kako and Lafreniere, it gives them a chance to blossom. It gives them a chance to develop. It gives them a challenge. It presents them with an opportunity and a challenge. And I think that now is the time. Let them prepare for it during this time. Let them get their legs back. Let everybody feel refreshed. They're going to have four practices beginning on February 11th, leading into that return game against Boston on February 15th. So you've got time to practice it. You've got time to prep it. You've got time to talk about it, do everything you want to do. But coming out of the break, I think it would be a mistake for the Rangers if if they don't have that arrangement. And you see how it goes for a month, and then you're more well-equipped to make an informed decision about can this work as our top six moving forward? Is this a playoff caliber top six? Or do we need to be even more aggressive on the trade market? So I I think this is a really long answer to your question, Cody. I got a bunch of questions and I spent, I don't know, however many minutes that was, 10 minutes on one question. But anyway, that that I think is sort of like the main thing I want to talk about on, on this episode is no, I don't think there's a rush for them to make a trade. I don't think it's necessarily because Lafreniere has played a couple games recently on the top line. I don't think that they were ever going to rush this for the, all the reasons that we talked about. But at the same time, I do think that especially in the last handful of games, it's become increasingly clear that Lafreniere should play on that top line. Maybe you ultimately decide you don't want him on the right. You'd rather try Kreider on the right. But I think for now, Lafreniere has expressed that he's willing to do it. Put him on that right wing. Let him roll for a little bit. Give him a challenge. I know everybody's been making a big deal about his ice time, and I wrote a story last week that was all about the nuances of that and how you shouldn't just focus on the ice time. It's also about situational usage. Well, his situational usage has been a little lackluster, 
and it's time for them to put a little more on his plate, I believe. And I think that this is this is absolutely the right time to do it. And again, I think they will do it. So we'll, if, if I'm wrong, we'll address that topic when they get back. But I, I, my hunch, all the signs that I'm seeing right now are pointing in the direction of Gallant going that way and having Mika, Kreider, Lafreniere on the top line, Panarin, Strom, Kako on the second line. All right, let's go on to another question. And this one, here's another one sort of about Gallant and his decision-making and lineup usage. Kanish Theroar, who has submitted questions before and we appreciate it, wrote, what accounts for Gallant's lukewarm treatment of Morgan Barron? He seems like the kind of player the coach would like, at least according to the eye test. He's applied himself pretty well whenever he's had a chance. What will it take for Gigi to play him over McKaig? Well... I also agree with you, and you guys know, I think we talked about this last week, that I believe that Barron should get a more extended opportunity in the lineup. I don't think he's done a whole lot in his time in the lineup to to wow you or say, okay, you need to keep this guy in. But I think it's pretty obvious to a lot of us that McKaig, while he works fine as your 13th forward, and we know that Gallant really respects him and loves his work ethic and appreciates him for his versatility and his sort of no-nonsense attitude and, you know, put him in wherever you want and, and he'll go play. But Barron is the guy who could potentially be a useful piece for you moving forward. He's young. It's the time for but he's not that young. He's 23, so he, he's, he's a little more experienced than your average prospect. And, and I think that there is a valid argument to, to make to say they should give this guy more run there's a better chance of him sticking around and, and being a valuable piece of your bottom six than a guy like McKay or even a few others. So absolutely, I would be in favor of putting him in the lineup. I actually wrote that I think my third line, we just talked about the top two lines. I think my third line, if it was up to me coming out of the break, would be Barron at left wing, Barclay Goudreau at center, and Philip Heedle at right wing. I think more likely you'll see Julian Gauthier on that line and Barron out. So uh, to me, I'd rather see Barron at this point than Gautier. I think he Barron's a much more reliable defensive player. I think he he's a much more headsy player. I think you're going to get a little more playmaking ability out of him. Gautier has the strength and the speed. We know about that, but he is not producing. The Rangers have played him in 34 games. He only has three goals. I know his expected goal numbers are really good, but that's because, see, this is, a, this is actually an interesting conversation sort of separate here is, I think that when we look at analytics, and I do think that they're always a very important part of the conversation, part of the equation, always need to be considered. You guys see that I use them all the time in the stuff that I write. But Goti is a guy who, because with that speed, he crashes the net all the time and finds himself in those high danger areas, those register as high danger chances. And that, that boosts up his expected goal rate. But what we've seen from this guy, and I've talked to different scouts and various people about this, what we've seen about this guy is the decision-making and the finishing ability just aren't there. And he's had enough of a sample size and a run at it now where you would hope that eventually those things would pop. But his all-around game, I believe, is not as polished as Barron's. He Barron doesn't have the, the wow-you physical traits that Gautier has, but I think Barron is going to play a much better all-around game, and that's why I would go with him. I, I just think Gautier, even though the analytics look good, 
it's just the, the goals aren't happening. If you're not producing any goals and, and your only real skill is driving to the net with speed, but you can't finish, then I, I don't know if I see the point of keeping him in the lineup over a guy like Barron. But I think you're going to see some combination like that on the third line. Heedle and Goudreau definitely there. And then the third guy, you know, you can make an argument for Barron. I would make the argument for Barron. But I think more likely you're going to see Gautier. I, I don't know as far as Gallant's treatment of him. I don't know if I would describe it as lukewarm, but we've seen and talked about this loyalty that we see from Gallant. And McKeg, I think he absolutely looks at as one of his guys. I think he really respects those gritty, grinding guys, under-the-radar guys, journeyman type of guys who are just, yes, coach, I'll do whatever you say kind of guys. And that's absolutely what McKeg is. And, and that's not to say that that's not what Barrett, but the Baron isn't that. But I think that McKeg has worked up a little more trust with Gallant because he's been around the team longer. And this might not sound like a great excuse, but that's just my sense and my read on the situation is Barron has spent more time in the AHL, hasn't been on the NHL roster as much. McKeg, in a lot of ways, feels like he's paid his dues a little bit more. And he listen, he did have a stretch recently where I think he was taking a lot of criticism and he actually had a couple good games that he strung together. You know, good as far as, you know, limited minutes on the fourth line kind of a thing. And Gallant loves that he kills penalties. He obviously trusts him on the PK. But, I, you know, I, I don't think it's so much that he has some specific gripe with Barron as he's sort of just being loyal to McKay. And we've seen him do that. He has talked about developing young players, and he has given a lot of young players opportunities. There's no doubt about that. But he also, when it comes down to it, he's pretty loyal to his veteran guys too. And a lot of times when it's a situation of giving a young guy a chance or leaning on a veteran, he does seem to prefer leaning on the veteran. And I think that's kind of what you're seeing in that situation. All right. Next question comes from Michael, who wrote, not entirely hockey related and understandable if you can't answer, but who's your best interview from the team? As in, who do you find it easier to get answers from or will be more likely to talk to you and get a, get a good response from pre or post game? It's a good question, Michael. And obviously, uh, as you touched on, I mean, I wouldn't come on here and throw any, anyone under the bus if, if I felt like somebody was really bad with the media. But to be honest with you, I've covered, I, I spent some time, I think I've told you guys this before, covering baseball. I was our backup on the Yankee beat for like five years in the early 2010s. And that was the era of a lot of stars on that team. And I found them, I was also younger and less experienced, probably less sure of myself, but I found those guys a lot less approachable for the most part. Now, there were some great guys on those teams who were, who were awesome to talk to and, and forthcoming with their answers. And there's a lot of accountability on that team. Derek Jeter definitely set the tone for that. But it, it did feel like there wasn't a whole lot of interest in, in dealing with the media from some guys and you know, you get a lot of canned answers and stuff like that. And you, and you get that from pro hockey players too. But pro hockey players, to me, a lot of them come off as a lot more down to earth. Guys you could have a beer with, that sort of thing. Uh, so I think that for the most part, the Rangers have a pretty good collection of guys who are pleasant to deal with and good interviews. But as far as the insights and the guys that I feel like you're going to get the most honest answers from the guys who when you ask them a question you feel like you're going to get an answer that really gives you some educational value that really gives you a peek behind the scenes that really you know sort of sheds light on issues with the team or 
you know, anecdotes or whatever it might be. There's, there's definitely a few guys that come to mind. Ryan Strom absolutely is one of them. He's really good at handling the media and he definitely gives you some really good answers. A lot of quotes that you can work with, but also just, you know, he, ta- I think he takes a lot of the questions very seriously and tries to give you as brutally honest of an answer as he can. And I definitely appreciate that. Kreider is the same way. Kreider is interesting because if you try to get him to talk about himself, he's going to deflect that. He has no interest in that. He's really, I'm sure his teammates love and appreciate that. He's really good at deflecting credit from himself and certainly does not seem to like talking about himself. But he's the guy who, after a loss, if you want someone who's going to break down exactly what the Rangers are doing wrong, what they need to fix, Kreider is is really good at that. He, he's a really good guy for the Rangers to put out in those situations. Uh, Artemi Panarin is just a ball of fun. Like, I feel like that guy makes me laugh all the time. And, and you can kind of joke with him, especially, you know, we do a lot of, we talk off camera in English to him quite a bit. And I think in those atmospheres, it, it just, I like him better personally than, than when he's going through the translator. Sometimes I feel like stuff gets lost in translation and it just doesn't come out the way that he's saying it. And he talks for a while and then the translation is really short. And you're like, wait, is that really everything he said? His English is, I think, probably better than a lot of people would believe or be led to believe. But, you know, he's only comfortable doing it in small settings and prefers not to do it on the camera. And I totally get that. He is a really articulate, thoughtful guy. And I think what we see sometimes with people who come from other countries and English is in their first language if they are really thoughtful like that, they worry about if I answer this question in English, it might not be as articulate and, you know, as as good as it would be if I answered it in my native language. So I get the instinct to, to not want to put yourself out there if you feel like you're not going to represent yourself fully the way that you would like to. But Panarin's English is, is it's plenty good enough to do, you know, little interviews here and there. And, and he's just a really funny guy. You could tell he loves life. You could tell that he tries to get enjoyment out of every situation, and I definitely appreciate that. I mean, the, the, you know, the list goes on and on. Ryan Lindgren, super nice guy. You guys have heard him on the podcast before. He, he's just a super down-to-earth guy who, who's very pleasant to deal with. Mika is the same way. I mean, you, I could go on and on, but th- those are a few of the guys that I think come to mind right off the top of my head. Oh, Ryan Reeves. I, I definitely got to mention him. Ryan Reeves is like, He's like media gold. That guy is a quote machine. He knows exactly what he's doing when he comes in there. But he's also really funny and chill and easy to talk to. So Reeves definitely has been a welcome addition to the team from that standpoint. I think we hit on a few guys there. I'm sure there are some I'm forgetting, and I apologize to those guys. But for the most part, I wouldn't. there's nobody that jumps out in my mind. It's like, oh, my God, this guy's terrible to deal with. I think the team is is a lot of guys who, who, are, who are pleasant to deal with, respect what we do. Hopefully, you know, obviously we respect them and hopefully the respect is mutual. So it's definitely cool seeing guys like that. It's not quite the same as I told you guys before as it was when we had locker room access because then you had a little bit more of an opportunity to get to know guys on a personal level, talk about families and, and all different kinds of stuff like that. This, though, is much better than the Zooms. We are in person and there is some room to, to joke around and, and talk a little bit once the interview's done and that kind of stuff. But it's not it's definitely not the same as it was in the locker room. So hopefully, hopefully, fingers crossed, we will get back to that one day very soon. All right. Uh, let's keep going here. Nick Garant wrote. New New York Rangers fan from the UK. Wow, coming from from overseas, I like that. What are your current thoughts 
and your sources view on Capo Caco's future with the organization. He seems to be a solid team player with no points to show his worth. Three seasons in, should we be seeing more? Good news is he should be a cheap contract extension. We've talked about this before, so I'm not going to go too deep here, Nick, but I absolutely think he's going to be coming back. I do think the price tag will have to be relatively low. Obviously, he's going to be due for a raise. He's he's not he's going to go up, I'm sure, at least into the two, three-plus million dollar range. But the Rangers, because of their cap restraints next year, and because of the fact that Kako is not going to be able to say, hey, look at all the points I scored, which is what you know agents do in negotiations, then I do think his upside as far as the new contract is somewhat limited. Is there a remote chance that the Rangers would entertain trading him? Yes, but I think it's very, very unlikely. So I would expect to see him back next year, and I think the Rangers are going to have to maybe play a little hardball with him as far as the new contract goes, just because of how limited their cap space is going to be in the next couple of years. All right, let's keep scrolling here. Ryan Mead, we're not allowed to take questions from other podcast hosts on here. I mean, I guess maybe I'm in a good mood today, so we can. He wrote, one sense I'm getting is that Drury is just going to take the best deal available of any forwards on the market. Do we see a New York Rangers player, a new New York Rangers player by the next game, or does everything wait for the deadline? And Drury sees how the market shakes out. The latter, Ryan, we talked about that a little bit. You got to really get with the program here, man. Uh, he's going to wait and see how it shakes out, I believe. And as far as the best deal available, like, yeah, I'm sure that <laughs> I'm sure that's his goal. Maybe I'm missing, maybe I'm missing exactly what you mean on that question. But yeah, for sure, I, I think it's more likely he's going to wait and see how the market shakes out instead of rushing anything. Um. Thomas Imborn one, Imborn one. I hope I'm saying that right, Thomas. Will Fox and Kako be back after the break? Yes. Big questions about who will be dealt at the deadline and what the decor will look like next year. Schneider is likely to stay. Jones also looked very good. That raises questions that you probably can't answer. Well, I guess you're leading into Nils Lundqvist. And, you know, this is another thing we've addressed before. At least one of those young defensemen is going to be traded very possibly at the deadline. I think at the latest by the summer during the offseason. I do think, though, that coming out of the break, and I talked about this story that I wrote about forwards that went up on Thursday morning for next week. I'm working on one analyzing the decor and and the depth in the decor and all that. I do think that Schneider has positioned himself where he is going to be Gallant's favorite of the young guys to keep playing when we come out of this break. I would look for Schneider to remain in the lineup based on the senses that I'm getting right now. Now, another question here also about D. We just addressed that. JB Faz, one, two, one, three, wrote, who are the Rangers more likely to trade for? Chikrin or Sherratt? So those are two defensemen who have been rumored to be available at the trade deadline. We've talked about Chikrin before. Guys, I know there's rumors out there about him, but I'm just not seeing it. I'm not hearing it. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe someone's not telling me something, but I do not see Chikrin as a guy that the Rangers are pursuing right now. Doesn't make a lot of sense because... They are not in a good position to take on any players who are under contract beyond the season unless they're offloading significant salary. It's not out of the realm of possibility, but I have not gotten the sense that they're heavily involved on Chikrin. So I guess Sherratt would make more sense if they were going to pursue a defenseman because I believe he's on the last year of his contract. And the Rangers, anybody that's on the last year of their contract, the Rangers can pretty much afford. They have a lot of cap space right now. It's just taking on anybody who's under contract beyond, beyond the season is going to be an issue. So I think Sherratt would make more sense. 
I think Chikrin's a pipe dream that, that honestly to me seems like it got some legs on the internet and people are taking it and running with it a little too much. I don't I don't see the Rangers getting Chikrin. All right. DD wrote, it seems as though the playoff teams in the East are basically set, just seeding to be determined. I agree with that. Carolina and Florida are the two teams I would not want to see in the first round. So the Rangers getting the two or the three in the Metro is important. Who is the most ideal matchup? I say the Caps. Ooh, tough one. Tough one. Uh, I do agree Carolina is obviously not a good matchup. We talked about that a lot last week. Their speed, their forechecking, all those things that gave the Rangers trouble in that game in Raleigh a week plus ago now. I I think that that would be a difficult matchup for the Rangers. Florida for some of the same reasons, although the Rangers, have, have, I think they're 2-1 they're and one against Florida this season, and they obviously played really well against them on Tuesday. So they might not scare me quite as much, although I do think, I, I think they have more skill than Carolina. Speed is probably about equal for the two teams, but I think Carolina is a little bit of a better forechecking team. So Florida, I think I would maybe prefer slightly over playing Carolina, although they still scare me because, like I said to you guys, seeing them play in person – I was I was wowed in that first period. They looked really good. As far as the Metro teams, I mean, the Caps beat the Rangers in the opener, but we've seen the Rangers play pretty well against the Caps in the past. I don't think they would scare me too much. Uh, Pittsburgh also, as well as they've been playing lately, I don't know if I see them as a terrible matchup for the Rangers. They're actually playing them, I think, on February 26th in Pittsburgh. They haven't played them yet. So we'll, we'll get a, a chance to see how that matchup works out when they go to Pittsburgh. Boston, the Rangers handled them pretty well when they were there uh, for the game right after Thanksgiving. But Boston's also a team that I think, with all their pedigree, would scare me a little bit. Hmm, who else are we forgetting here? I mean, honestly, here's the thing with the Rangers. I think a lot of these teams on paper are deeper, more talented, more experienced Certainly, if you, I mean, we haven't even talked about Tampa. I certainly don't think I would want to see Tampa if I were the Rangers. That, that They're the two-time champs. They might be the team I would want to see the least, quite frankly, because of how good we know that they can be in the playoffs. I, I think the Rangers, for them to win a playoff series, they're probably going to go into pretty much any playoff series as the underdog. Now, that could change if they make some crazy trade deadline deal and if all of a sudden we come out of the break and Lafreniere is, is riding high on the top line and all these things are clicking for them. But they're most likely going to go to, into any playoff series as the underdog. The key is going to be Igor. If Igor is as good as he has been for the majority of this season, he's going to give them a chance in, in any playoff series. If he's not really good, I would definitely have a hard time seeing the Rangers beat some of these quality teams that we're talking about. But anything's possible. We've been surprised before. Once you get in, anything can happen. So the Rangers are in really, really strong position to get in right now. I think the eight teams in the East are are pretty much locked in. And, you know, whoever you get, you take your chances with. I I don't know if I would put a whole lot of stock in seeding. But at the same time, I do think you're going to see the Rangers come out of the break and certainly make a push to get the best possible seed that they can. I just don't see any of the teams that are chasing those top eight in the East having a realistic chance of of jumping past them. So it is nice. You'll never hear the Rangers say this, but it is nice for them, I'm sure, to have that cushion that they have right now. And again, once you get into the playoffs, as far as matchups are concerned, we'll talk about that more later on in the season. But I think they're probably the underdog against almost maybe any team in the East. I know Toronto with their playoff woes, people might uh, 
people might be leery of, of looking at Toronto as a favorite in any series, but the Rangers, uh, as a young team that hasn't been in the playoffs in years, has some depth issues, has some five-on-five issues, I, I do think they'd probably be looked at the, at, at the underdog in, in almost any series. All right, folks, we're getting we're getting close on timing here. I'm going to go in a minute. Let's see if there's one more in here that we want to try to answer. We all play for Canada wrote, who are some genuine considerations the Rangers have in figuring out their five-on-five scoring problems? You know, I think the lineup combinations that we talked about will give them the best bet to fix those problems, but I ultimately think the only way they're really going to fix those problems is to bring in a player who can round out that lineup. If you look at the top nine, which we broke down a handful of minutes ago, I think that there's a very clear void for at least one top nine forward. So if the Rangers get the right guy, that could make everything sort of fall into place, makes the whole lineup look deeper, and probably helps with the five-on-five issues. But for now, I think they're at least a one-piece short, and that is probably the reason, on top of all the absences that they've had for COVID and injury and and all that, why their five-on-five play has been lackluster so far. All right. I think that's going to do it. We hit on a lot of different stuff here. I see a handful more questions in there, so I'm sorry if I didn't get to you, but I appreciate everybody who took the time to listen. I hope you guys didn't mind if this was a little too much of me. (laughs) Sometimes we've done a couple of these mailbag episodes before, and it does feel like, for my taste, a little, at least a a lot of me, but I, I thought there was so much stuff to talk about, and there was. I think we're still close to an hour here, so hit on a lot of different topics. Really hope you guys enjoyed it. I'll be back next week. Definitely with a guest for next week because we're not going to have any new hockey to talk about. So I'm going to try to bring out somebody who we could maybe dive into something a little different with. So to be determined on that, I will keep you guys posted. In the meantime, you don't have any hockey for a while now. So so go do something fun. Enjoy yourselves. Do some cooking. Spend some time with the family. Maybe, I don't know, watch some other sports, whatever you want to do. I'm definitely going to try to enjoy myself and definitely spend some quality time with the family. But for now... I still have some more work to finish up today, and then I got to go cook those steaks for my dad. So I'm going to get going. Thanks to everybody for listening, and I will talk to you next week.